Since the first confirmed case of COVID-19 was reported in Kirkland, Washington, in late January of this year, the United States has seen an additional 65,000 cases. Around the world, by late March, there will be nearly half a million people infected with the virus and more than 20,000 deaths. In addition to the health concerns, who will be the most affected by the coronavirus? The answer, the poor. I'm May Cannon. This is Hashtag Activism. Today, we'll be talking about the global pandemic of the coronavirus, or COVID-19, and poverty. Individuals in developing countries who normally suffer the effects of extreme poverty, lack of access to water, food, shelter, livelihood, let alone access to adequate health care, these will be the people who are the most affected by coronavirus and the crisis. According to a recent NBC article, for example, there's around 50 million people in India alone who are thought to be living in extreme poverty. That's on less than two U.S. dollars a day. Dr. Angela Chaudhry works in slums and rural poor communities across India, and she says that coronavirus is, quote, a disease that makes disparities seem more obvious than any other. We're saying wash your hands with soap and water or sanitizers and keep at a distance, but none of these things are available in the slums. It's not only the international poor living in abject poverty who are going to be the most impacted, but the working poor in the United States are among the communities that are going to be the most affected as well. Think about some of the devastating effects. Small businesses have to shut their doors because people aren't out and about shopping as they practice social distancing. There's a decreased ability or limited hours at work if there's work to be had at all for those who are on lower income jobs. There's the inability for the poor to be able to pay for childcare when kids are home from school. Many children don't have access to technology to be able to keep up with online assignments and their schoolwork. And what about the thousands of children who depend every day on free meals distributed during their lunch? These are just some of the immediate effects of the coronavirus on the poor here in the United States. And we're just beginning to see some of the broader economic effects of the virus on both the domestic and the global poor. McKinsey Consulting, for example, anticipates that we're just beginning to see the economic effects of the virus on business. They predict that large-scale quarantines, travel restrictions, social distancing is going to cause a sharper fall in consumer and business spending until the end of the second quarter. That means late June 2020, which is ultimately going to produce a recession. McKinsey predicts that the outbreak coming under control in most parts of the world probably won't happen until summer. And then there's these self-reinforcing dynamics of a recession that kick in to prolong the slump, which they anticipate will last through the end of September 2020. As consumers stay home, businesses lose revenue and layoff workers, unemployment levels rise sharply. These are just some of the immediate short-term economic effects. But what about the long-term economic impact? According to McKinsey, it's severe, approaching the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, with a projected recovery not to be on the horizon until spring of 2021. Here to talk to us today about COVID-19 and poverty is Paul Ackerman. For more than 20 years, Paul worked at Wells Fargo. He served as the executive vice president and corporate treasurer, and then later as the vice chairman of Wells Fargo Securities. But most recently, he spent the last two years as the chief financial officer of Compassion International, whose mission is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. 
You know, it was a sobering couple days when I started thinking about this and doing some research. We all feel the the immediate economic impact. You hear the news of the stock market being down, of businesses shuttering. But when you do a little bit of research, you find out that this this virus is going to have a pretty disparate impact on low and moderate income people. Um, I'll say within the U.S., I'd argue uh, across the world as as well. So there's a the couple things that lead me that to that conclusion. The first one is that the sectors of the economy that are having the greatest negative impact generally consist of jobs that have relatively low hourly wages or the amount of hours per week that people work are low as well. So think leisure and hospitality, non-grocery retail outlets, transportation. Um, You see this impact played out by restaurants and bars that have been shut down. Many retail stores uh, where I live have been classified as non-essentials, and they've been ordered closed. But even if they haven't, the shelter-in-place or the remain-at-home guidelines that are uh, that are out by have been issued by many uh, local governments cut down foot traffic tremendously into these these uh, places. So people that have those jobs, which tend to be low and moderate income families, are really going to be hit hard by this. The other thing that you quickly uh, realize is that it's very difficult for low and income, low and moderate income families to have established a, a level of financial resilience. And what do I mean by this? I think you can best understand it just by a very brief quote um, from a recent Brookings Institute study. And it said that 39% of US adults reported lacking sufficient liquidity to cover even a modest $400 emergency without borrowing or selling an asset. So if you think about 39% of the U.S. adult population having less than $400 on hand, and then you put that in perspective of an economic impact that may last for months, you quickly realize we're going to run into a problem. And I think even though there's a substantial work being done by the government to try and minimize this, when you put the provisions of the coronavirus rescue plan into context here, which provides $1,200 per person for adults and $500 per child, when you compare that to the impact of living for several months with either totally uh, diminished wages or greatly diminished wages, you're going to have a lot of families that struggle to pay for basics like rent, utilities, food, etc. I think even beyond wages um, and beyond the fact that a lot of households don't have financial resilience, the people who are able to work probably face another challenge. So you think about people who may be clerks in retail stores, grocery stores, for example, or workers in a warehouse or workers in a factory, workers in agriculture, areas that have been deemed essential workers. Those people tend to be lower income jobs, um, and they're out and about and are more exposed to the virus than the people who can stay at home and work from home. So not only are they out um, potentially getting more exposed to this, but at the same time, a lot of those people um, are people who don't have adequate health care. So a recent study I looked at said that there were about 30 million people who don't have uh, adequate health care in the United States. 
And when you look at who that is, the uninsured working age adults in the United States are disproportionately low income, Latino, and under age 35. So again, um, one more one more way in which the poor could potentially suffer here, because not only might they be more likely to get exposed, but if they do get sick, they don't have medical coverage um, in the way a lot of us do. So just to put that into perspective, the numbers that you just shared of 30 million people with limited access to healthcare, that's 10% of the U.S. population. Just about, yes which is not insignificant by any means. And then some of the other realities are for families who um, are able to work from home, like their jobs would allow them to, you have the digital divide where a lot of lower resource families wouldn't have access to internet at home or the adequate resources to be able to work from home, even if their jobs might allow them to, right? That's right. Um, I was talking to a friend And she was describing the impact to some inner city families where you've got two or three children who are trying to get their online work done for their school on one smartphone that a parent owns. Um, So I I did a little bit of research and came up with some some pretty shocking shocking, uh, results. Uh, 44% of U.S. households with an income under $30,000 do not have broadband. And... 29% 29% of lower income Americans don't even own a smartphone. So the idea that every kid can have a tablet or every kid can have a computer and have access to the digital learning that's being provided by many school districts, that's not going to affect people people similarly. Um, you know, if you're low and moderate income, you probably don't have either access to the devices or access to broadband in order to fully participate in that. And these are just the effects of the coronavirus on the poor here in the United States. Talk to us about the international community, particularly in developing nations where there's extreme poverty, people who live on less than two U.S. dollars a day. What do the realities of this pandemic look like in those communities? Yeah, I'm afraid that's not very encouraging either. And certainly I'm not I'm not a physician, but I'm going to put together two things that I hear routinely about this virus and the way it has an impact on people's health and then compare it to what goes on in the developing world. So first, I think you we've often heard in the news lately that the disproportionate number of fatalities have been with people with pre-existing conditions. And then the second thing that we've heard is that successful treatment of that, of of the virus, often requires pretty pretty substantial intervention from a medical perspective. So you hear uh, people needing access to intensive care beds, people being put on ventilators, relatively intrusive, um, relatively sophisticated levels of medical treatment. Now, I'll juxtapose that to some of my experiences in the developing world, where you've got people who may not enter the virus with the best of health. So, for example, um, I was in Burkina Faso a few months ago, and there uh, a lot of people still struggle with basic needs. So we were a Western uh, provider of development activities, and what was needed there were basics, clean water, for example, um, adequate sanitation, adequate nutrition or food security, 
So people are coming in facing real challenges that could significantly impact their health before they even get sick. Actually, not could significantly impact their health, do significantly impact their health before contemplating getting sick with the virus. Then the idea of intensive care beds and ventilators being prevalent in those communities is just non-existent. It makes me concerned about the disparate impact that this is going to have on the world's poor as well as the U.S. poor. Well, with that reality that the poor will be disproportionately affected, what's your encouragement of how, for those of us who might have access to resources, what can we do to make a difference? That's a really hard question, given the enormity of the problem. So if you think about what the government has put together in the span of a week or 10 days, a rescue package worth $2 trillion, um, which is larger than the rescue package that was uh, put together uh, for the Great Recession in 2008, with that being about a trillion and a half dollars, gives you an idea of the scale that some people are thinking this is, scale of the impact that some people are thinking this is going to have. So it's a little bit daunting uh, to try and recommend any any remedies for that. But I think there are two things that are are necessary. They're probably not sufficient, but I think those of us who are fortunate enough to be in middle class or upper middle class socioeconomic um, situations want to consider. One is simply to check with people in your lives that have needs and to see or that may have needs. We all know people, and it can be as varied as uh, people you encounter in your day-to-day lives to college students. Uh, One report I heard early on in the virus is that when they started closing college campuses, for a lot of kids, they don't have anywhere to go. So check with people that you have come across or that you know and say, hey, what, what is it that you need that we might be able to provide The other thing I think that is important is that people continue to give to organizations that serve the poor. They're at at the moment, they're in significant need. I went out to the website of a mission that I support in the Metro DC area, and here's what they had posted. Our challenges are big. We're expending valuable resources on cleaning supplies and preventative measures. Our volunteer help has been curtailed. Grocery stores are not giving us donations because their shelves are bare due to hoarding. And worse, the uncertain climate has already affected our financial donations. This is a place that I've been into, that I've volunteered at. They do good work and they need our help at the time. So I think the other thing I'd think about is if you're in, if you have the means to do so, to donate as much as you can to organizations that are making a tangible difference in the life of the poor. As we talk about some of these realities, it seems pretty hopeless. Um, As someone who self-identifies as a Christian, in the midst of these harsh realities, what gives you hope? Well, I do think we'll we'll beat this. So I I don't think this is indicative of long-term problems with the economy. In fact, I might argue that it's that it's even easier to think about than the financial crisis of 2008, because one of the issues that you had there is no one really knew where bottom was. This is an enemy that is a little more knowable than uh, what we experienced in the Great Recession, if you want to put it in those terms. And I actually have no doubt that um, we'll figure out a way to mitigate its impact. Having said that, that's going to take time. I saw a study coming out of the UK or a paper that came out of the UK that suggested that 
really we're not going to be through with the economic impacts of this until a vaccine has been developed, tested, and widely administered to the population. And their estimate to that was between 18 and 24 months. So I think we're in for a, a bit of a challenge, although long-term, I'm pretty confident that uh, we'll get through this. And one of the things I hear you saying is that we can seek to get through it together, that we'll be more um, effective in our care for our neighbor when we ask what our neighbors might need, and that for those of us who do have resources to seek to be generous in sharing those with others. I think that's right. You know, if you look at the, the inequality of income distribution across the U.S., it's not as if we don't, as a country, have the resources to get through this. And I think we really need to be careful about how we share them. Um, now, I know a lot of people that are in higher socioeconomic uh, groups have felt a lot of impact as they see stock market uh, gyrating all over and their 401ks have gone down. On the other hand, relative to people who don't have 400 you know, dollars on hand to sustain them through a crisis like this. I'd say that the impact of your 401k going down relative to people who can't pay the rent in the next few months, it may be worth, um, may be worth considering spending a little bit of your resources. Matthew 19, Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. There's no greater time for us to be the church than when the needs among us are so great. As we've been talking about coronavirus and poverty, what can we do? Certainly, we can give to local and international organizations that are responding directly to the crisis and seeking to mitigate its effects. Whenever there's a crisis, the church and Christians will seek to respond to the urgent needs that arise. That's a good thing. However, let us be reminded that the needs that existed before the coronavirus pandemic still exist today. And not only that, many of them are further exacerbated as a result of the disease. So if you were giving to organizations before the crisis and you can afford to do so, continue to give. But even if you don't have financial resources, there's still many other things we can do to be a support, particularly in response to the economic hardships caused as a result of this pandemic. I live in a small community, and one of the things I've loved to see is there's a new Facebook group that's providing opportunities for people to be able to barter with one another within the community. So one person's hoping to start a garden actually to help feed their family. And another person had these tomato plants and had all these young starter plants that they were able to share. And while practicing social distancing, they're bartering to be able to meet immediate needs. Someone else I know on Facebook's great at sewing, and she shared a pattern of being able to make masks that are medically approved by local facilities. University hospital systems like Vanderbilt have provided sewing instructions on their websites for the dimensions on how to make homemade face masks that can even be used by the medical system. When you're able, and according to the rules that are applied in your community, support the local economy. For example, when our family sends one person to the grocery store, we'll often call and pre-order a curbside delivery from a local restaurant that's still open. It might seem small, but we hear these types of things really make a difference. 
If you enjoy kids and have a creative idea for a project, host a virtual project time to give parents you know a break to help keep their little ones entertained even for a short time. My friend Nicole Morgan did this with her nieces and nephews, and it was wonderful to see what they could do with toilet paper rolls. These are just some of the things you can do. There's more ideas in the resource pages and articles accompanying this episode on my website at maycannon.com. Forbes magazine also had a great article with some suggestions on things we can do during the virus. One of them is to donate blood. There's a severe blood shortage in the midst of this crisis, and many places are still taking blood drives. You also can do something as simple as writing a note to those on the front lines to offer them encouragement. They're working so hard to keep our food and shelves stocked in the grocery store and our medical needs being met. So offer encouragement to those you know who are working in those capacities. Consider offering and sharing your skills virtually. If you have skills from accounting to yoga, you can do something like that online. It's a great way to be in solidarity and offer support. The needs of the world are great. And as we seek to respond to the material needs we've been talking about today, might we also come together as a community, pray for each other, offer support and encouragement, and may we not give up hope. Much of the content from our conversations during episodes of Hashtag Activism come from my upcoming book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, out with University Press on May 26th. You can pre-order your copy today at a local bookstore like heartsandmindsbooks.com or wherever books are found.